My guest today is Tom Hyde, who is a geologist with degrees in geoscience and natural hazards. In addition to his academic background, Tom has a keen interest in the scientific and philosophical works of Karl Popper, as well as in libertarianism, climate and risk, gender theory, aesthetics, anti-aging, and pronatalism, among other topics. We plan to talk about various topics, including why it is good to have a larger population, why death is evil, why Tom is pro-fossil fuels, the potential advantages of wealth inequality for the poor in free markets, and the concept of infinite gender theory. Audience questions are welcome through side chat. We'll try to stitch in the best ones and have them answered. So Tom, my first question for you is, to a lot of people, the increasing population of the planet is very concerning. You take the opposite view and think that more people will save, not destroy the planet. Can you please explain your stance and refute some of the common arguments opposing a more populous society, starting with, we will run out of the planet's resources? Hello, Arjun. It's such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for the introduction. Um, population. Yes, the idea that population increasing is a good thing flies against many common sense notions about people, what people do, um, how economics functions, how society and civilization as a whole functions, the nature of resources and materials. But I think it can all be boiled down to two main principles that is held in the common sense view, which are that people on the whole are consumers. We extract more than we produce. And second, that resources are finite. And that because of our consuming nature, we whittle down the existing resources on the planet. And with more people, there's a larger appetite, which means there's fewer resources to go around. Now, this picture is entirely false, and the two principles are both false, and I'll explain why. I'll start with the second principle, stating that resources are finite, which is, on the face of it, the most common sense, intuitive thing you can say, because, you know, the Earth has a finite mass, and it has a finite energy associated with that mass, and at this time, there really is a finite amount of copper and iron and zinc and their associated ores contained within the Earth's crust. That is all true. The mistake lies in conflating these things in a vacuum, materials, with their applications in society with knowledge as resources. So materials are finite, but resources are unbounded, infinite. A good example of this that David Deutsch writes about in The Beginning of Infinity is uranium. So uranium has existed, let's say, for a billion years, contained within the Earth's crust. And that uranium has been uranium for that entire time. It has had the same atomic mass and charge and radioactivity. All these properties have been the same. Everything that we now know to define it as uranium has been the same. But before people, and before our knowledge, um, I think it was like in the early 20th century of nuclear physics, we that uranium was not a resource. It was simply a material. It was an element, but it was not a resource because a resource is the relationship between knowledge and materials. It is a use case for a given thing. Um, it's a physical solution to a physical problem. Um, so uranium became a resource in 1902, or whatever the year was, um, Rutherford, etc. 
Another example of this is um, I'm currently working at a manganese mine and manganese is primarily used as an alloying agent for steel. Now, the status of manganese as a resource has no real basis to its material status in the physical universe. It is derived from certain properties that make it useful in its alloying application with steel. Now, manganese would become more or less of a resource if, say, for example, we found another element that was better at alloying with iron to make steel, or it would become less of a, a resource if we, say, carbon nanotubes became readily available and more versatile and applicable to industrial applications than steel. So if steel was superseded, then manganese would be a different type of resource. It would be less or more of a resource, but it hasn't changed. The material manganese is the same, but its resource status has changed with updated knowledge. So the lesson to be drawn here is that resources are less a function of the bulk parameters of materials than they are a function of human knowledge, problems and problem situations, uh, things we want to do, use cases. So steel is a resource because we want to build tall towers. Uh, steel is a resource because we want to build bridges. And copper is a resource because we want to transmit electrons through copper wires. Uh, it's not a resource because copper exists as a physical uh, solid in the Earth's crust. That's the material status of copper. The resource status of copper is about electricity. And as we have learned from David Deutsch in his books, The Fabric of Reality and The Beginning of Infinity, and also from Karl Popper and his books, uh, knowledge and knowledge creation are fundamentally unbounded. So if resources are more a function of knowledge than they are of materials, then resources, like knowledge, are unbounded. And to drive this home even further, to make it more intuitive, now that we know that resources are more a function of problems and of knowledge than they are of materials, to say that resources are bounded, are finite, is logically equivalent to saying our desire and our ambition to solve problems is finite, which holds none of that intuitive weight. Anyone who has read a newspaper, anyone who exists in modern society knows that we want to solve poverty. We want to solve wage slavery and subsistence living. And anyone who's read science fiction wants to build space elevators and Dyson spheres and intergalactic travel. And we want to be a type three civilization. So problems and the desire to solve problems is deeply human and unbounded and infinite. And that is the reason why resources are also infinite. Now, the second principle that underpins most anti-natalist arguments, these are arguments that oppose a larger population, is that people uh, in principle, on the whole, are consumptive. We extract more than we produce, and that with a larger population, that implies larger appetites from the same set amount of meals. So if you have 100 meals between two people, that's a banquet, that's, you know, months worth of food. But if you have 100 meals between 100 people, that's one day's worth of food. And if you have any more than that, it's basically just a guarantee for violence. So the idea that the earth 
can sustain, say, 8 billion people, which is what we're at now, we're actually a little over, is based on this calculus, that there is a fixed amount of produce and that people with wider appetites will have less to go between them and will have to ration more. And this will lead to violence and starvation and famine, etc. These sorts of arguments can be traced back to Thomas Malthus and Paul Ehrlich, who um, have applied this calculus of fixed food stocks to increasing populations and come to the conclusion that we need to halt um, population growth to avoid um, conflict resulting from, you know, food wars is what they fear. The fallacy in this paradigm is twofold. The first aspect is the same as I described, the materials and resource distinction. An apple is both a material and a resource. It is. It has a physical description that makes it a material, uh, a discrete, distinct material. And then it has a use case, which relies more on, it's like things to eat in the same way that uh, copper is electricity, apple is food. That relies more on knowledge than it does on materials. And secondly, it assumes that people are only eating food, that people do not grow food. People grow food. And the optimistic argument here, and I think I heard this from David Deutsch, the nice expression, two hands, one mouth. Two hands metaphorically meaning we are more productive than we are consumptive. And a great example of this is in the, I think it was the early 1930s, his name was Norman Borlaug, something like that. He's the, the father of the third agriculture revolution, uh, the Green Revolution, which he was an agricultural scientist. He's one man. He eats probably the same amount of calories as your average person. But one man with knowledge and with science and with progress advanced agricultural science to the point where he saved one billion people from starvation by increasing yields. And this is the singular power of people in the universe, the creative power to conjecture and criticize and to solve problems. In this case, agricultural problems and food growth problems. So if one man using knowledge and science can create enough food to feed a billion people, then the consumptive picture must be false. People create more than they consume, People are radically abounding. And that is a deep source for optimism with regard to the future. And it relates to pronatalism with the obvious fact that if people are abounding, then more people are more abounding. More people solve more problems. More people create more resources, create more wealth, create more good for everyone else around them. Your neighbors do not steal your food. Your neighbors grow your food. I really like the difference you explained between resources and materials. And yes, I think Norman Borlaug is one of the most underrated humans of all time. Indeed, through this lens, you realize that most humans generally underestimate the capacity of people. And in fact, some people denigrate the actions of people and think that a world without people would be a better world, which is really weird when you think about it. Can you then make the case for immortality? Is that just another problem to be solved? And if we can solve it, should we solve it? What would the implications of immortality be? Yeah, this social epidemic of misanthropy, of the deep self-hatred towards people and society, 
seems so bizarre to me um, to value rocks over universal explainers, people. I mean, generally, people don't have the explanation of what a person is. And if you haven't read David Deutsch and the beginning of infinity, you're not going to know that. So people see people as marauders and extractors. It's based on these fallacies I've explained. So I think with a few small key ideas of how people are more abounding and transformative than we are destructive and dangerous, um, you can naturally fall into a pro-human stance. So maybe that's the, the uh, solution to that social problem. It is also worth noting that these um, anti-human stances are often from a environmental position, um, a naturalist position. So they actually um, value the biosphere above civilization and above people. We can go into naturalism if you want. I have a lot of criticisms there, uh, but I'll focus on the aging question now. Uh, the case for immortality, or more broadly, uh, longevity, because immortality as a concept comes with a lot of baggage and pricks a lot of ears. So if we say longevity, which is just life extension, making your life longer, um, a person can live for a million years and still die and not be immortal, but that's better than them living for 80 years. So longevity is in large part the other side of the, the coin to pronatalism, in that it's the natural pro-human stance in saying that if people are good, if life and consciousness are good, then more people, life, consciousness is good. Continuing those things are good. And it's more than just continuing because the optimistic stance is that a life extended will be a life improved. There is no guarantee of progress. We've learned this from Deutsch and Popper, that errors are inevitable, ubiquitous. They're our natural state. We can, in fact, destroy ourselves with nuclear warfare, but we can also, in principle, not destroy ourselves. And we can, in principle, create wealth, create resources. So a future life will be one of improved quality. We take for granted what a dawn age we find ourselves in. Of course, we are at the pinnacle of progress relative to the past, but we are still at the beginning of infinity relative to potential progress. We haven't even solved subsistence living in society. Very few people can sit in a chair in comfort, with food, with security, and just think about pure mathematics for 10 years. People have to work. People have to do things they don't want to do. There is coercion. There is scarcity. The future of life, if we succeed in longevity with wealth creation, will be orders of magnitude better. Or at least it can be. And it's important to note that longevity research is anti-aging research. So a lot of people, when they hear the concept of living for a thousand years, they imagine living as an infirm, frail, sickly old man for, you know, 910 of those years. Whereas with an advanced gerontology, with advanced biological engineering, we can retard the aging process so that you would be in a 25-year-old body for this entire period. And this, is, this isn't even getting into like transhumanist features, but if you're in a 25-year-old body for your entire life, without illness, without cancer and Alzheimer's and without 
uh, arthritis, you're free to move and there's no pain in movement, you're not naturally going to want to die. So much of the natural um, leanings towards uh, like the, the poetic sense of like death is, is rest comes from the poverty of the torture, the biological hell of aging. So if we remove aging, we naturally improve life. This is why when I wrote my article on anti-aging, on longevity, I titled it, The Opposite of Death is Youth, because pro-death arguments only come from age. There's youth in the physical, bodily sense of being free from pain, being free from illness, having common ability to move. Um, and then there's youth in the cognitive sense and the spiritual sense of being open to learn new things. And it's unfortunate, a dual side of aging is that old people are viewed, the old dog can't learn new tricks. And even very optimistic people, Elon Musk is infamous for being anti-old people. He thinks old people should die because they can't learn new things. And this is just a cultural tragedy resulting from physical age. Old people don't learn new things because they can't get out of bed because they can't reach for a glass and they can't play with their grandchildren. If you fix the physical body, people will learn forever. And that is the metaphorical spiritual concept of youth. So to paint an optimistic but totally possible picture of a future life with longevity, a 500-year-old person from today has had 500 years of resource and wealth creation. They've had a 25-year-old healthy body this entire time. They have probably have cybernetic transhumanist uh, implants for the memory issues, like a 500-year-old life would be difficult to remember, but we would solve that problem as well. There is a whole slew of problems with, with longevity, but again, problems are inevitable, but problems are also soluble. So a 500-year-old person has had six, seven, eight lifetimes worth of learning and art and appreciation and experience and growth, all in a healthy 25-year-old body, all without illness. And it's still just the beginning. That's still the dawn age. And that's why I think we should have longevity and why the future looks incredibly bright. I suppose I should talk about the actual mechanics of aging, uh, the biology of it, because while this might sound inspiring, and optimistic, it might also sound unrealistic. So a lot of people view aging as this determined fatalistic process that we, we can never escape. It's the second law of thermodynamics. It's the end of the universe. It's the end of being. It's inevitable. Now, while that may be true, it depends on our like larger cosmological theories. I don't know about the end of time. No one else does. Uh, a thousand years is definitely on the table. Aging isn't even a biological process. It applies to all physical objects. It applies to cars, which is a great example. Now, cars are not biological objects. They are mechanical objects. They're made of aluminium and steel and plastic. But aging, fundamentally understood, is a mechanical process, not a biological process. Aging is 
accumulated wear with repeated use. It is damage over time. And I've learned this from Aubrey de Grey, who is the father of longevity research, gerontology. Um, there are cars on the street that are over 100 years old. These cars were not designed to last for 100 years. So how did we solve this problem? The solution is repair. As components damage over time, as they wear, as they age, we repair them or we replace them. And this is exactly the same principle applied to biological bodies. And an example of this is stem cell research. So say your cells stop replicating at a certain rate after a certain age, I think it's 25. Um, stem cell research hopes to replace these dead cells um, in the same way you would replace a spark plug in a car. And there are about seven mechanisms by which we age. Cancer is one of them. Intracell buildup is another extra cell buildup. The point is you don't need to know anything about the biology at all. You just need to know the principle of wear and tear and repair and replacement to know that solving aging in human bodies is possible. So the conclusion is that aging is both solvable and tractable in our lifetimes. Again, there's no guarantees, but it's possible. And that the future of life will be improved life, which is why we should want longevity. The opposite of death is youth. That's brilliant. I'd like to dig deeper into this particular stance that's expressed by Elon Musk famously and other people. This idea that old people don't change their minds. Now, I would think that has something to do with the concept of irrational memes, ideas that spread themselves by their ability to disable their holders as critical faculties. So even today, most rulers are removed well before death or illness force the issue. So that's a plus point for our institutions. But the problem of people not changing their minds is not exceptional for old people. That can happen with younger generations as well. And ironically, people made very little progress. And we can say almost no one changed their minds about things or discovered new things when the average life expectancy was much lower than it is today. So I'm referring to the time before the industrial age, so the agricultural age and all the generations before that. People then lived for shorter durations and so most did not reach that age of physical deterioration so that they would be unable to move around, explore and just tinker with ideas. It was a problem of irrational memes, not age that was the cause of the stagnation experienced by generation after generation. So I just think that this line of reasoning that old people cannot change their minds is entirely misconceived. And that, of course, as we improve the physical lifestyles of older people and let them have the equivalent of their 25-year-old bodies, old people will continue on making progress and discovering new truths about the world. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And age, in the broader sense, away from the actual like physical manifestation in the body, can be thought of as an anti-rational memeplex. The elderly are part of a culture based on their bodies, um, based on their position in life. They've retired. Retiring is, or retirement, is a cultural institution that holds within it many anti-rational memes about should old people learn. And of course, you are right that 
anti-rational memes extend beyond aging and for the vast majority of human history it was the norm for people to be stopped to think and you know it's a sign of progress that today there are fewer anti-rational memes than there were in the past um you know there's less religious and cultural uh, persecution for certain ideas but they still persist um again we are still in the dawn age we are still ignorant and we will always be ignorant and there will always be these impediments these errors um aging is just one cultural institution that i'm focusing on and i think is a very low hanging fruit even without the biological solution we can still think of elderly people as people with minds and this ties into the whole cognitive aspect of like hardware versus software and we might go into that later on with gender um but i view elderly and children both ends of the age scale as as much people as 25 year olds 40 year olds um so it's definitely an area to progress on all right let's talk about some prevailing misconceptions that are getting in the way of faster progress and hence a better improved world most people think that the government is necessary for the rights of the people and that without government there will be chaos in society and that rich people will suppress the poor it's also pretty mainstream to think that wealth inequality is bad and usually the result of exploitation by greedy capitalists what do you have to say about this line of thinking and you've also written in the past that in a free market wealth inequality is good for the poor how can that be yeah so a quick note on anarchism versus authority first off anarchism is not the rejection of order it is the rejection of authority and one of the key uh insights to popper's work is uh, the rejection of authority in epistemology and this applies to his political philosophy as well so i'm actually interested i'm not sure if popper has written about anarchism at all but it seems to be the natural link um the natural next step from his political philosophy of error correction and the rejection of authority and mechanical arguments towards uh rapid error correction i view um the state as a contingent it's like when a baby has to learn to crawl before it can stand i think people couldn't uh exist with anarchism in the past so they had to defer to authority and defer to a coercion because they were so ignorant in a similar way to how the past is full of warfare as opposed to persuasion whereas in the future um we can self organize without coercion and without authority so i'm pro anarchy in the future um but we just need to learn how to do it so the from a to b question is still very open yeah so the prevailing view is that economic inequality and in inequality more broadly is the devil it's the worst social problem facing society in the 21st century i think i started my article on this topic with the google ngram viewer and if you type in uh, absolute poverty and wealth inequality you'll see only very recently wealth inequality has shot up in the past 10 years and is now actually overtaken absolute poverty as a cause for concern well it's it tracks the uh, number of 
mentions in published works. So that would act as a proxy for social concern. I'm sure there are some political, psychological explanations for this. Jonathan Haidt, I think, has spoken on the psychology of unfairness and why it's so such an emotive topic for people and why it has captured our like moral instincts to such a degree. I would argue to the detriment of reason, uh, because inequality, as I will argue, in a vacuum is neutral. And it can either be good or bad, depending on our political and economic structures. So let's begin with the indifference, the neutral status of inequality. Because in a vacuum, the state of the difference between rich and less rich has no necessary connection to the state of absolute poverty in society. And to be clear, I think absolute poverty is a massive problem. Poverty is the physical manifestation of ignorance. And while ignorance is um, ubiquitous and inevitable and it will always be with us, it is still evil. As David Deutsch says, all evils are caused by a lack of knowledge, which includes poverty. So as a fun example displaying how inequality has no necessary link to poverty, we can imagine a future society where the poorest echelon of people would equate to what we consider today to be millionaires, multi-millionaires. They live in mansions and there's a man lounging by his pool with a margarita in his hand, but he doesn't own a spaceship and he's renting his land off of the higher class in this scenario who own continents and entire planets and have built space elevators, etc., etc. Now, the measure of inequality in this scenario between the two individuals, you've got the mansion-owning man on the one hand, and you've got the planet-owning man on the other hand, that inequality is greater than the inequality measured between the global wealth in 2023 and the wealth of an ant. Yet, the wealth of that man lounging by his pool, sipping on a margarita, is nowhere near absolute poverty. While poverty is almost always relative and it scales with our problems. So that man is poor relative to his social, his like peers, but there is absolute markers, right? So he can feed himself, he can house himself. He doesn't have to do things he doesn't want to. He doesn't have to coerce himself. Um, th that's what uh, a level under which I would call subsistence, which we still live in today, even in the West. Whereas this man is above that line, he's above subsistence, he's in a post-subsistence world, and he is in no way absolutely poor. Now, of course, there are examples where inequality confers negative impacts onto the impoverished, but this is entirely a function of the political and economic structure of society. So the example I use in the piece I wrote about this is a medieval England compared with modern capitalist globalism. So in the 10th century England, I think it was the reign of Ethelred the Unready, uh, it was a feudalist monarchy. So there was the king who had liege lords, they were earls, and they ruled over their counties. 
and these earls had effectively serfs they were like slaves um, peasants who worked the fields so these were the the poor lower class in this time and these people were genuinely negatively impacted by the wealth difference between them and the king and them and their ruling earls um, because this world this society had very low liberty and it was based almost entirely on coercion um, if you were a peasant and you didn't farm the fields you would be killed and the fact that the king was richer than you meant that he could raise an army and you could not so this is a very concrete uh, example where inequality you know stuffs you you're not in a good position you can contrast this with modern society that's capitalist and globalist society in which there are characters who have as much if not more inequality compared with their anglo-saxon counterparts so elon musk and a subsistence farmer from tanzania have a greater distance between their wealths than historical figures now the difference in modern society is that we have principles of liberty and private property and freedom of exchange. So the relationship between the poor and the rich is very different. It's not based on coercion, it's not based on servitude, um, it's based on individual freedom and collaboration and trade. So the existence of wealthy people in modern society is the existence of wealthy trading partners who are more likely to make you rich than they would you know, whip you or cut your head off. So to pump intuitions even further, you only have to ask yourself the question, would you rather be a serf in Anglo-Saxon England, earning well below a dollar a day, or would you rather be a subsistence farmer in Tanzania, earning the same material amount, but with the existence of wealthy trading partners who are eager for your collaboration and potential innovation, and who can pull you out of poverty much faster. And this is very stark. If you look at South Korea in two, three tops generations, they've gone from fettered agricultural poverty to global Western technological powerhouse. And this is all through the uh, economic transition of farming to manufacture to middle-classhood and onwards. They're now, I think GDP-wise richer than England, maybe even America. And this is without even commenting on socialism and communism and how the alternative to wealth inequality is, unfortunately, poverty equality. Okay, so you mentioned there that the existence of wealthy trading partners can pull people out of poverty. So people would rather choose to be poor in a world with some degree of inequality and hence trading potential with wealthy partners so that they can excel and improve their situation then they would choose to be poor in a world in which everyone else is also poor and there is zero inequality which would mean zero opportunity and you see this happening when so many people choose to move from rural to urban areas as thomas Sowell put it poor people in particular seem to quote, vote with their feet by moving to where there's greater prosperity rather than where there is greater economic equality. Yes, that is exactly right. And I think I use in the article another scenario which pumps these intuitions even further. Uh, if you imagine an alien spaceship just warps into near-Earth orbit and they have vast technology beyond our own, which is the equivalent of, of saying they are much more wealthy than we are. 
So in an instant, the wealth inequality encompassing the space around Earth has just skyrocketed. Now, the effect of this wealth inequality depends on the nature and intentions of the aliens. So are they violent? Are they coercive? Do they want to enslave us? Or do they want to trade with us? Do they want to exchange knowledge and uh, collaborate and innovate together? So in that latter case, this massive increase in wealth inequality is the best thing to ever happen to anyone in the history of the universe, basically. And this is precisely what's happening with the Tanzanian subsistence farmer and wealthy American trading partners. They are the aliens that have warped into orbit. And this is an amazingly good thing for the poor in the world. And this is an example of like the obverse side to the voting with your feet argument, which I think Milton Friedman also made, where the rich actually reach out to the poor. So the poor in this scenario don't even have to vote with their feet because the rich come to them. This is the alien warping into orbit and this is the American entrepreneur traveling to Tanzania. Now you get a lot of well-meaning ethical arguments against trading with poor people because they view it as exploitative because the poor, while having liberty, have limited freedom so when your choices are limited between starvation and work you always choose work however poverty is our natural state even the rich today are poor and any increase in options is good so the americans coming to tanzania and increasing options for the tanzanian farmers they now have a choice between subsistence farming and cheap manufacture that is good. And that is an increase in freedom and liberty and wealth. It's a triple win. An increasingly fashionable idea is degrowth, the core thesis of which is that nature is inherently good and safe, and that only through human exploitation has the ecological balance been disturbed. Everything bad in nature, from floods and forest fires to the extinction of animals, is a consequence of selfish human action and that we must stop making all this progress at the expense of nature. Can you steelman the case against this philosophy and make the case for the use of fossil fuels, which have arguably made possible the modern world and all the luxuries that come with it? Yeah, so degrowth, as I see it, is the direct antithesis to the philosophy I've been outlining. That's the philosophy of Karl Popper and David Deutsch of conjectures and criticisms of problems and their solutions of progress. So degrowth is the rather utopian idea that we can reach a, reach a static position whereby we can suit all our needs and from which we don't need to grow anymore. And the economic application of this theory, sometimes called donut economics, I believe, is the idea that we can imagine a society where all basic needs are met. And this would be, in the utopian sense, um, above the subsistence line, which I've described before. So a man could sit in a chair and think about pure mathematics in this world. But this world has a fixed population, probably a lot less than 8 billion people, or at least it has a population where the death and birth rate cancel out, so it's not actively growing. And there's no uh, embedded 
growth obligation economics that um, some people talk about. Now, anyone familiar with the Deutschian picture sees this as the disaster case. It's not utopia, it is dystopia. Utopia is, in the Deutschian view, by definition, a dystopia because it is a state that cannot be improved. So the idea that we can reach a static position uh, whereby we should not progress is anathema to everything I've been talking about. Not only is it an incredibly pessimistic position with regard to aging and death, because implicit to the theory is that everyone who is born should die, because if they didn't, they would linger past the point of equilibrium, population equilibrium, and that would destroy the economic balance. It is also just incredibly unambitious with regards to a utopian ideal set with economics maybe 50% or 100% greater than today. To think that that is the state from which we don't need to improve upon is disastrous and so sad. And it relies upon this fallacy that you alluded to, that nature, the natural world, the biosphere, is fundamentally balanced, peaceful, safe, which, looking at history and prehistory, is the most easily refuted theory you can imagine. The history of biological harmony is the history of biological torture, death, destruction, genocide, speciesicide. 99.9% of all species have gone extinct, and naturalists worship this system as some higher ethical ideal, and it's ridiculous. I've often thought at the center of both uh, naturalist and animal rights logics is this glaring contradiction between the fact of abiotic and biotic factors basically being at war since biology's inception 3.8 billion years ago, and the fact that animals do not live in harmony with their environments, they live at the mercy of their environments, and more often than not, are murdered by those environments. So the logical next conclusion for an animal rights activist should be to remove all animals from nature. We should domesticate all animals, or potentially, there's no real difference between the genetic code of an animal and the actual animal being alive. If you think animals are conscious, then there is. We can get into that if you want. But we could sequence the genomes of all extant species, store them digitally and robustly, and then when we're wealthy enough, we can create a nature reserve somewhere where they are not at the mercy of each other and of the poverty of their surroundings. But yeah, back to degrowth, I think is the Shoggoth demon behind the mask of emissions, and this is the link to fossil fuels. And what I mean by that is when most people criticize fossil fuels, they use emissions as the main proxy, the point of target for that criticism, because uh, emissions are a specific type of atmospheric pollution, which create the greenhouse effect, which increases temperatures, which increases the hazards associated with a hotter climate. And for the record, all those hazards associated with warmth and heat are real. Human-induced climate change is real and accelerating, and it is a problem that needs to be solved. The problem with the mainstream um, Paris Agreement type uh, solutions is that they take emissions and 
the hazards as the only aspect affecting climate risk, which is entirely false. Now, I wrote an article titled One Equation to Make You Rethink the Climate Crisis, because as I've said, when we think about climate issues, we think about the hazards alone. We think about heat and hurricanes and floods and forest fires, but they are just one aspect, one of four that um, impact risk. So if you take climate risk, hazard is one of those positive features. It scales positively also with exposure, which is a measure of how much things there are to be destroyed. For example, a nuclear warhead tested in the Nevadan desert, there's a lot less exposure in that desert than there is in Las Vegas because there's more people and there's more property to be destroyed. There's also vulnerability. Risk increases with vulnerability. People have more vulnerability to nuclear weapons than they do to rainwater. And that's uh, so the proclivity to be harmed or damaged by a hazard. And then uh, risk scales negatively with resilience, which is your ability to return back to initial conditions. So for example, you need to have some vulnerability to have resilience. You need to be damaged by a hazard. So a good example of this is a house that burns down in a fire, but has insurance that makes the process of rebuilding that house cheap and effective. The hazard remains, but the risk is minimized. How this relates to fossil fuels is that when you burn hydrocarbons, you do create this greenhouse effect and you do increase temperatures, which does increase hazard. It also um, increases wealth because energy is probably the best proxy for wealth because in every industry, energy has its hands, its footprint. Um, so we can say as a rough estimate, 80% of our wealth is indebted to fossil fuel energy, the burning of hydrocarbons, which has increased hazard, but is also decreased vulnerability and increased resilience to the point where risk has actually fallen compared with the alternative, which is where we curb cheap, plentiful, scalable energy, which is fossil fuel energy, um, for poorer countries who are then falling prey to this false idea of a natural harmony and are poor and have higher vulnerability, less resilience to natural hazard, and the risk is actually higher. Now, I'm very pro innovating green technologies to the point where they compete with fossil fuels on the market without subsidy in their aspects of like um, cost, scalability, portability, um, all these aspects we need from a wide spanning energy system. A good example is nuclear, which is at the moment too expensive and takes too long to build. It's about 10 years for a uh, big fission reactor for developing countries. So there are plans to make modular fission reaction, uh, reactors where the reactors are built on production lines and then shipped by rail to wherever needs them in literal sea containers. And the quickest way for us to achieve this goal, to innovate green technologies so that they outcompete with fossil fuels, is to increase and accelerate our use of fossil fuels. This is the effective accelerationist argument. Um, and this ties back to the resource arguments from earlier in that energy 
is a resource because we want to fuel our cars, we want to heat our homes, and the burning of fossil fuels, in the same way that the use of manganese in steel uh, alloying actually um, contributes to the wealth creation, which allows for its replacement and superseding. So the use of fossil fuels has created the wealth for us to discover nuclear physics and to discover both fission and fusion. And again, in the Deutschian picture, this, pro this process is fundamentally unbounded. The use of fission and fusion energies will contribute to the development of their energy successes. And the use of carbon nanotubes will create the wealth and the resources to create its material successor. So to conclude, not only do fossil fuels, the burning of hydrocarbons, make us safer from climate hazards, they also increase, accelerate the, the rate at which we can eliminate the use of fossil fuels. Okay, so let's talk about animal consciousness. Do we yet have a good explanation to think that animals are conscious creatures and that they can feel pain and suffer and hence eating meat is cruel? Or is it more complicated than that? And while we're at it, we could discuss human consciousness as well. Is it just an assumption on my end to think that you, Tom, are conscious? Or is there a good explanation to think that you, me, and everyone listening to and understanding this conversation is conscious? Uh, so it's important to note before we speak about consciousness that compared with the other arguments uh, we've discussed in this talk and other arguments and uh, topics that both Popper and Deutsch discuss, it's built on a lot shakier ground. So compared to, for example, the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, Deutsch would argue that is not only the best explanation of quantum mechanics, it is the only explanation of quantum mechanics. Now, animal consciousness and consciousness more broadly, the hard problem of consciousness, qualia, we have no single theory, let alone competing theories, um, to distinguish between. So we can't lend anything the status of our best explanation. We are very much in the realm of raw conjecture. But I do think that there are some key insights from both Popper and Deutsch that serve as valid criticisms towards the theory that animals are conscious in the same way that people are. For the purpose of this discussion, I'm going to ignore panpsychism and other arguments of that kind and just focus on arguments that um, posit that consciousness um, arises from information processing, uh, computation, um, physical processes in the universe. The mainstream view takes the shape of a spectrum we can imagine from, for example, rocks and atoms at the one end, which most people, apart from panpsychists, would think are not conscious, going up to um, the smallest unit of biological life, like an amoeba, um, and then to a flea, and then to an ant, and a fish, and uh, you know, dogs, cats, uh, dolphins, uh, large apes, and then humans at the the uh, the top end. And potentially, um, a lot of people would maybe even posit that superintelligent AGIs would have a higher level of consciousness relative to us because they're doing some 
quote unquote quasi magical thinking that humanity people can't do. So in this sense, the level of consciousness directly relates to the perceived cognition of that entity, that system. Where the Deutschian view, as I understand it, diverges from this picture is in that smooth, continuous um, transition between states of consciousness, depending on animal cognition. Um, in the Deutschian view, cognition and creativity and computation is, is a binary thing. You are either Turing complete with universal computation or you are not. And you are either a universal explainer, the software running on the hardware of a Turing complete uh, universal computer, or you are not. So in the Deutschian view, if we're linking consciousness as a, an emergent phenomena from a certain type of cognition, a certain type of information processing, which we'll call creativity, then it is literally binary. Only people have it because only people are universal explainers. And I think the best criticism of the animal conscious position, um, the most intuitive insight that I've seen in this comes from Popper's um, maxim that all knowledge is theory laden, which if we're tying consciousness to cognition, the process of knowledge creation, then we can say, and this is potentially my, my own leap, but it seems to make sense to me, and I think it's a valid criticism of the opposing position, that all experience is theory laden. There is no such thing as naked, unadorned, raw experience in the Sam Harris sense, for example. So if we look at animals and how knowledge is created in the biosphere, genetically across uh, generations by um, mutation and selection, there isn't the analogous connection between states of knowledge that you have within minds in people. All the knowledge existing in an animal exists in its genetics and is just being run. It is not actively creating new knowledge and it is in that active creation where I conjecture that knowledge, uh, consciousness arises. This holds true also for large language models who analogously um, operate off of a single algorithmic um, base code or a search function in a data set and they don't actively create new knowledge. Um, so to say that large language models are conscious would go against this theory. And conversely, me speaking with you now and every person listening to this podcast and every person I've met in my real life, I can see are using creativity to solve problems in their life. Now, unfortunately, we live in an age that does squash creativity. There is scarcity and there are anti-rational means, but I think this is going to increase with time with you know longevity research, as we've discovered, uh, discussed. Um, in the future, people will be far more creative and solve their problems more rapidly and, and uh, with more vigor. Now, so I think based on this theory, which I tentatively accept, uh, it is then rational to, to say that every person, uh, every human 
unless they have some major impairment in their brain whereby they can't function, are people and have consciousness. So to summarize, if you exhibit knowledge that you weren't born with, that wasn't present at your inception in either genetics or base code, uh, an example would be, you know, rockets flying to the moon, I don't think exist um, via variation selection in our genetics. Um, if that knowledge is present, then you must have created it uh, during your life. And the creation of that knowledge is in this theory where consciousness arises from. No other animals other than humans do this. So in this theory, we can say that no other animals other than humans are conscious. Most gender discourse is pretty toxic. What is gender and how many genders are there? Can you help divorce all the politicizing and wokeness from the true and interesting aspect of gender theory? Uh, so unfortunately, gender theory has fallen smack bang into the middle of the culture war um, discourse and has been politicized to destruction, pretty much, um, to the point where many smart people don't want to think about it. It's a big turn off. It's considered... Um, a non-topic, which is as far from the truth as can be possible, because gender theory is, in reality, a subset of the theory of personhood and the theory of knowledge and knowledge creation. It's about epistemology, and it's about um, individualism, and it is, in reality, one of the most interesting topics you can possibly think about. Um, and as a quick side note, um, to moralize certain ideas and certain discussions is a very powerful species of anti-rational meme whereby thinking about that thing is incredibly risky there is reputation destruction associated with it and you can be ostracized and you can lose friends and lose relationships many of us will have had this experience and it's unfortunate there are some very interesting topics including um anti-racism and gender theory within quote-unquote woke discourse which have been moralized um, completely out of reason whereby it turns these people off from thinking about them. So I think it's important that we push back against this and actually take the ideas for what they are and to appreciate how vigorously interesting they are because they really are so interesting. So with regards to gender, I think it's immediately important to distinguish it from sex, um, which is a probably the greatest source of confusion um, in this discourse and the reason why so many people um, disagree, because they're speaking past each other in different terms and at cross purposes. So sex, broadly defined, is the biological, mechanical, genetic characteristics of a human body or of any mammalian or any animal body if they are sexually dimorphic. Um, it is gametes and chromosomes and penises and vaginas and breasts, etc. It is a pretty simple, easy to understand um, parameter uh, pertaining to physical bodies. Now, the lesson we learn from Popper and Deutsch and that I briefly touched upon in the animal consciousness discussion, is that people, unlike all other animals, have transcended their genetic knowledge. We are minds 
running on the computer of our brains within the robot machine of our bodies. We are not equal to our bodies. They influence us and we are not equal to our brains. We are the emergent experience from the computation software running on our brains. So that's an important distinction to make early on. The mistake that evolutionary psychologists make is in thinking that people, humans, like all other animals, are wholly defined by their genetic knowledge, where in reality, people have inborn ideas. We are slightly determined by our genetic knowledge. Um, babies, the proportion of their knowledge when they're born is probably mostly genetic. But the Popperian and the Deutschian view is that all knowledge, including genetic knowledge, is rewritable using conjecture and criticism. So no idea uh, is written in our base code and can't be changed. This also translates to the IQ debate and the hardware versus software debate more broadly, where the evolutionary psychologists think IQ is an intrinsic uh, unchanging property of the brain architecture, which is a confusion of terms in the um, Deutschian picture between hardware and software. If we are, as Deutsch posits, uh, universal computers and universal explainers, we have the capacity to think any possible thing, uh, to simulate any possible process and to run any possible program. So IQ in this in this picture is a specific species of knowledge that I think is probably genetically determined, but is as rewritable and as uh, malleable as any other concept. And the link to gender is that the sex difference between men and women does confer real genetic difference. There is content in the genetic difference between men and women, and there is also meaningful difference between being born in a male body and being born in a female body, having breasts, having a vagina, having a penis, having larger muscle mass and uh, heavier bones and being taller does uh, affect self-reference. And this is um, a product of culture and identity, and I'll get into that later. But more broadly, the genetic component is real, but it is also, again, malleable under creative weight. So if gender is divorceable from sex, from hard-coded genetic knowledge, we can think about gender as a collection of ideas, a collection of ideas that confers shared uh, values, uh, behaviors, um, emotions, in exactly the same way a culture does. So I think of gender in exactly the same terms as I do of cultures. So how do we define the traditional gender binary of masculine and feminine um, in terms of ideas? Uh, masculinity, traditionally, can be defined by power, strength, valor, honor, aggression, temperance, stoicism. And conversely, femininity can be defined by compassion, delicacy, beauty, warmth, forgiveness. And backtracking a little bit, I think for the vast uh, history of humanity and people more broadly, we learn this from Deutsch, that for hundreds of thousands of years, people had the capacity 
to create knowledge and to be universal explainers, etc., but did not employ that capacity. So I think for the vast majority of human history, uh, sex and gender, these typical masculine and feminine uh, roles have been literally true between all men and women. That is to say that the genetic knowledge conferred by sex difference has been a very large proportion of all the knowledge contained within people for, say, 90 plus percent of human history. That remaining 10% is probably even less, um, d- uh, refers to the 400 years since the Enlightenment, the scientific revolution, the Renaissance, etc., from which we have been a much more creative, dynamic culture, um, creating more knowledge and criticizing more ideas. And as a result, the distance between genetic sex difference and gender, the ideas contained with gender as culture, has grown rapidly. So today, my position is that the only thing keeping uh, sex and gender tethered is our belief in cognitive pessimism, the evo-psych position that our genetics determines uh, fatalistically all our ideas. The moment we understand cognitive optimism, that we can change all our ideas forever, and that knowledge creation is unbounded, means that gender becomes completely untethered from the effects of genetic knowledge. And moving forward into a much more dynamic, creative future, as I believe we are, and given the fact that every point of knowledge is an individual growth point from which we can discover new things, and given the fact that every person is their own discrete creative unit, creating their own knowledge uh, actively and uniquely within their own minds. I think in the future, the links between genders and cultures will decrease. There will be a higher proportion of unique ideas in people's minds from which we, in a sense, collapse the sense of gender entirely, which is where I get this concept of infinite gender theory from. If the space of possible ideas is infinite, and if with pronatalism we are creating more people and the world is more dynamic, and every point is a growth point and growth is unpredictable, every person will have radically different ideas from one another. They will have different values. And in a transhumanist future, with advanced biological and genetic engineering, and potentially with brain uploading technology, if we digitize our minds, our phenotypes, our appearance will be different. Or if we're in virtual reality, we can change our avatars immediately with no cost. So self-reference and uh, values and ideas will be much more diverse. And there will be 8 billion, 10 billion, a trillion individual genders in this future society. So you and me here in this discussion, being cognitive optimists, that means uh, taking the ideas of Deutsch and Popper seriously, that we can create, recreate, update, criticize our existing knowledge forever. We can meaningfully, with a straight face, say that my gender is Tom Hyde and your gender is Arjun Kamani. And this is how we can say there are eight billion genders today. 
That's fascinating. Well, Tom, it's been really fun having this conversation and I want to thank you very much for your time. Everyone should follow you on Twitter at TomHyde underscore. Your account is indeed what your bio mentions. It is all that is new and good. Before we wrap up, do you have any specific recommendations for people who found this conversation interesting and want to explore these topics further? It could be books, podcasts, people, or any kind of resources. The Randite in me says to recommend my Substack first. So uh, tomhyde.substack.com. You can read a lot of the articles I've discussed here, and I'm a much better writer than I am speaker. So I hope to see people over there. That'd be really great. Otherwise, in terms of resources and population growth, I would recommend The Ultimate Resource by Julian Simon, uh, which speaks about how resources are, in theory, infinite, and why people are good and why a large population is good. It's the perfect antidote to the population bomb by Paul Ehrlich and Thomas Malthus and those arguments. In terms of pro-capitalist arguments and anarchist arguments and the positive effects of wealth inequality, I would recommend The Machinery of Freedom by David Friedman, who you've had on this podcast. Uh, he's a big inspiration to me. And of course, I would recommend The Beginning of Infinity by David Deutsch and The Logic of Scientific Discovery by Karl Popper, um, Objective Knowledge by Karl Popper um, are all great places to start for the principles and applications of epistemology. And mate, I've had so much fun speaking with you been such a pleasure um and a quick note on my twitter bio all that is new and good is more than just my profile it is uh, my witness statement on the glory of personhood we are all that is new and good in the universe people and knowledge and knowledge creation and consciousness we are the fire in the dark and oh it's very it it makes me happy <laughs> so um Thanks again, and yeah, hopefully speak again soon. Amazing. Thanks again. Thanks.